Welcome to the Week in Sports Cars on the Marshall Pro Podcast, brought to you by Cooper Tires, brought to you by the Justice Brothers. And what do I normally say after that, Graham Goodwin? You normally say that it's brought to you by me over here rather than you over there. and uh, My British brother. Say, indeed, British brother. And it, it is great to have those hands across the ocean. Uh, it's about the only thing that's moving across the ocean whatsoever at all at the moment. And um, yeah, uh, good evening, good morning, good afternoon, wherever you are in the world from what is a very breezy uh, UK. We actually had a bit of a snow flurry, would you believe, earlier on today after four or five days of unremitting sunshine. But uh, I'm now ensconced in GGHQ at the bottom of the, the Goodwin Garden and uh, ready to uh, pile into what's another bumper bundle of questions from our listeners, MP. Speaking of ensconced, I had two scones for breakfast today. Boy, they were good, too. They were flaky scones and delightful. Or s- s- scones or biscuits? Scones, not biscuits. But I must admit, I was a wee bit critical of the, the vendor of the fine oh. scones because I actually had that thought. This is verging, verging on biscuits. A little biscuity here. As we open the show talking about random nonsense uh, that has nothing to do with sports car racing, but maybe, maybe scones are the things that power endurance racing and we just forgot. So, Mr. Goodwin, we, in the middle of last week's first episode, had said, hey, we're not going to get to all them. Send in your questions that we missed if you want them answered, and we'll try and do a makeup show. And then halfway through the show, we said, no, actually don't do that because we're going to try and just answer all the ones we didn't and split what's been a two to two and a half hour week in sports cars show to two a week about an hour a piece so we improvised and i think we succeeded so we're just going to stick with that yeah it works for me looking at nowhere yeah the volume of questions that we received should lay out somewhat nicely for two one hour episodes so before we get rolling here with all of that, wanted to mention a couple of things briefly up front. First of all, thanks to our pal, our listener, Jacob Bame, who sent a direct message with the enunciation from his Twictionary, all of the things that I miss words speak with my mouth, all the words I make up intentionally and unintentionally, and the rare, the rare number that Graham actually gets wrong it's pretty much the pruitt you can't word speak mouth good face uh dictionary that jacob's kept he did help me to understand that his favorite one eek and oog and oog and blag and whatever was related to me describing all of the muck and bugs and whatnot on the front of a prototype which apparently i described it's oh, i was trying to say ick and blech and disgusting things on it but didn't quite understand. We couldn't get the phonetic part of that at all, could we, Graham? You and I were just nope. thoroughly befuddled. I thought it was Leonard Hergenboom, but I was completely wrong. <laughs> I thought I was I, totally completely wrong. I thought former bad F1 driver uh, Hugh Brottengatter was someone I maybe had Ooh. thrown into a conversation. I, I don't know. But anyways, thanks for that, Jacob. And also, Jacob, we have a listener who's asked if we could make that list public, if we could share that. So let me know. You keep it. It's yours. Want to ask permission here up front. Also, Graham, on the ongoing topic of trying to amuse folks during this shutdown, which we believe is going to be around for a good while, been diving into a whole heck of a bunch 
of external hard drives to pull videos that I have shot since I started this wacky career in motor racing media in 2007. I'm glad you added that because for a minute I thought we were going to get into a whole lot of trouble with Mrs. Pruitt. Well, (laughs) you know, it, 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 animal husbandry is only a profession (laughs) if the animals know about it. So, um, quite happy to say that I've seen some fun little gems, very, very forgotten gems. A nine minute interview I did with Tony Kanon at Petit Le Mans 2007. When he was a part of the <clears throat> Andretti Autosport Acura LMP2 program, uh, and this in-car footage, and I just found something I've been looking for, Graham, for years. 2007, 24 Hours of Le Mans, which was my first in-car audio of, I believe it was Brabs, Aston Martin Vantage, um, or DBR9, I should say. V12 powered GT1 wow. car. Um, they were kind enough to let me throw my in car uh, recorder into that beast, and it was wet. And so it made for some really fun audio, but I've been wondering where that is. So, yeah, so I found that. And, anyways, uh, I'm hoping, hoping to start unleashing a whole bunch of just old video that a lot of it would have lived on the defunctspeed.com site. So I'll throw that up on my YouTube page and who knows, maybe Facebook as well. And yeah, just add that to the other forms of distraction we're trying to present. So speaking of presenting, my friend, as the official selector of categories (laughs) for our show between IMSA, WEC Aslam, Elms, ACO, General and Fun, where do we start the nonsense today? Let's go with IMSA. Let's crack on with some IMSA questions. And uh, this means I'm going to serve a couple of three or four up to you. And, well, we're beginning to get that theme coming of sim racing coming through quite strongly. Uh, First one is from our good pal Ram Terpstra. And he says, MP, have you heard anything from any of the IMSA manufacturers perhaps feeling left out on the first IMSA iRacing event? I have heard nothing about that, Ryan. And... I would say that knowing how vocal manufacturers are in sports car racing, especially about BOP, inclusion, airtime, presence, you name it, I would think I would. So I have not, which leads me to believe, wait for round two. And whatever happens there, that might be the lightning rod, but not so far, thankfully. (laughs) It's distracting stuff. There's plenty of uh, good stuff kicking around at the web, if actually that's what floats your boat. Uh, I've had, uh, well, I think it actually comes into a question later, so I won't uh, tell you about the uh, the notes I've had from um, uh, one of those organisations. I'll wait till that answer comes up, I think, in fun later. But uh, I know there was a lot of fan feedback. They were looking for a Corvette C8R uh, to be in iRacing. There might be some little while yet. But then again, awful lot of people sitting with not a lot to do. So who knows what might emerge. Next up, Dave Newell says um, he went in and out the military between 1980 and 2004. Hopefully just the one, Dave. Uh, what the heck happened to GTP, GTU and the SCCA? I spent 10 years playing catch up and actually became a photographer off and on in recent years. The sports and IndyCar sure has changed. It sure has, hasn't it? 
It most definitely has. Well, Dave, I would say that since coming out of the military, uh, you've had almost 20 years to answer this question, brother. So you need these two <laughs> idiots on a Sunday to answer it for you. Come on, buddy. You, you know, you got to opt in a little bit here. Uh, well, GTP and GTU, that's, I love the randomness of that, by the way. Not GTP lights, not GTO, but specifically the highest level of IMSA's former categories and the lowest level. Well, uh, GTP got to cost way too much money and it was, I don't want to say overrun by the factories. It had a factory presence almost from the outset, but the main thing that happened there is excess, large S. We got to a point where Nissan Performance Technology Incorporated, somewhere in the range of 250 employees, and for a two-car GTP team, granted they were feeding motors and doing other things for the GTO category and such, but when you have an IMSA GTP factory effort with staffing in the early 90s that is higher than any Formula One team, <laughs> than half of the IndyCar paddock together, it just tells you that the amount of cubic dollars being spent is disproportionate to survival. And so that collapsed. GTU, I tell you, GTU, I think, was such a wonderful formula. Tube frame cars, by and large. Uh, some of them were converted road cars, but not crazy expensive. We did start to get factories really pumping a lot of money in there as well. Nissan did. Uh, we had Dodge there in GTU. We had you know a couple of factories that got involved, and the cost certainly went up. But I tell you, that strikes me as a formula that I think of any of the ones from the old IMSA days. That one I think could thrive and survive today and be far cheaper than GT Daytona. Granted, uh, if you look at GTD, Graham, those cars cost half a million plus each seemingly they hold a bit of their retail value. So there is a, a solid market for resale. Don't know if I would say the same with GTU. Don't know if you could sell that Lamborghini Huracan equivalent of a GTU car to somebody in France to use it in whatever category they might want to there or wherever else. So that's the only thing that I think might be the downside of it. But boy, they were a lot of fun. Uh, and as for the SCCA, uh, it's still here. Uh, it's still doing its thing. Uh, but the SCCA being by and large an amateur organization, it's definitely subject Graham to the slow decline in interest of the average American to take their vehicle and go use it in amateur competition or buy specialist race cars to compete as well. So a, Organization like the SCCA, not too dissimilar from horse racing or boxing. It is strictly driven by the will of the people and interest of the people. And since it is something that has seen a bit of a downturn, unfortunately, I don't hold this as anything against the SCCA, Sports Car Club of America. But I do just see it as a bit of a litmus test of how are we thinking here? in the U.S. in terms of motor racing and active participation from the driving side. 
Um, I think Graham and I think Dave, we're this coronavirus shutdown is is wreaking havoc all over. But I think we're not too far away from there being a pretty severe disconnect in severing of that link between amateur racing and pro racing and there being a aspirational aspect that drives the amateur organization or organizations. There's also one here called NASA, North American Speed Association or something like that. Um, Those have been the two grassroots feeder systems leading. I mean, that's where I started in SCCA. That's where my dad raced. That's where, you know, that's the culture I grew up in. And then working on cars and doing other things, wanted and aspired to get into pro racing and did. Curious to see here, Graham, where this, at least in the U.S., and I'm sure the U.S. isn't on an island in this regard, uh, could there be a pretty strong separation between the two where the, the amateur side is dialed down so heavily in the future that pro racing just exists in and of itself it's something where it's there to entertain it's there to be something that folks enjoy but folks are not thinking hey my car out in the garage wonder what i could do with that next weekend and where i could go do an autocross or a solo or a time truck whatever it might be just curious to see where that if and where this leads because i don't think there's the same level of aha, I love it and I want to do it versus I love it. I think I'll just watch. Yep. It's, uh, I think a whole lot of things going to change in the weeks and months to come, my friend. Let's move on to a first-time questioner. Uh, and you're very welcome, TJ Schultz. Uh, first time submitted a question, said TJ. Do you guys think it's a possibility that the Detroit Grand Prix is still a go? And if so, do you think GTLM could be in the race, even at the cost of removing the GTD field? It's a really interesting one, TJ. And thank you for not only being a first-time submitter, but also for making me feel really embarrassed for not thinking about this, because this is, in theory, what I get paid to do and should be doing as a professional reporter, is thinking through ramifications <laughs> like this, and I didn't. Uh, I have a, this question uh, as a result of your question posed to IMSA have not heard back yet would say that this is a very, it's a unique thing without Lamar being the roadblock that has caused GTLM to be taken off of the Detroit calendar, knowing that it falls just, you know, two weeks prior to the 24 hour race in France. It's been a bit of a, not a sore point, but, bearing in mind at least that for General Motors and Corvette, the Detroit Grand Prix truly takes place in the shadow of its global headquarters. And so not having the factory GTLM team there, I know has been, um, yeah, not, not their preference. But now, knowing that we no longer have the Detroit-Lamar conflict in place, there is nothing stopping from GTLM in taking part. What I don't know is if IMSA would recalibrate its calendar because there's no longer this, at least right now, one-time lack of a roadblock. Uh, We do know, TJ, that the way IMSA sets up its schedule is each of the four classes in the WeatherTech Championship have a set number of races. They don't go, we do not have a full calendar with all four classes competing at the same time. 
So if GTLM were to be added to Detroit, that would mean it most likely needs to be deleted from some other event. And would that event agree to it? So possible, yes. Wouldn't necessarily be something that IMSA could do in isolation. I also don't think those GTLM manufacturers would just willingly sign up for one more race uh, by just adding Detroit and not subtracting from somewhere else. So that's the main thought here. You also mentioned the possibility of Detroit being a go. It is meant to take place on over the weekend of May 30th and 31st, at least in what I'm reading, and I, I would guess many of you are reading, looking at projections for the coronavirus and its peak and ramping down. Detroit falls in a window that does not look very pretty for it being able to take place. I have heard, I won't mention it here because I haven't written about it yet, but I've heard uh, some strategery for where Detroit might land on the IndyCar calendar, since it is an IndyCar weekend first and foremost, if it does get moved. And from what I know, it would get repositioned in a place, Graham, where there would definitely be no conflict with Le Mans. So Mm -hmm. whether it takes place as scheduled, TJ, or uh, is pushed off, uh, I think that this might not be something that uh, we would worry about. Let's wrap up this uh, short run through the IMSA questions for this half of this week's show with Nick Dovniak's uh, Dovniak. Question. Dovniak. Dovniak. Damn it. Dovniak. Dovniak. Are they going to adjust the BOP for the next IMSA e-race? God, we've had manufacturers be annoyed. Now, BOP-ness. Um, drivers should have to pick their car at the beginning of the season and be slavish to the series. BOP-ness to keep it realistic, says Nick. I love that question, Nick. I <laughs> don't know. I would imagine there would need to be some form of adjustment based on the clear, if you weren't in a BMW M8 GTE, you weren't nowhere in the Super Saturday IMSA iRacing event at Sebring. Don't know when they're going to hold their next. Don't know if they're going to stick to the GTLM formula uh, for the class, which, again, was not all-inclusive. We did not have Corvettes uh, there that I saw, nor did we have the latest, the C8R. No no, Uh, no, uh, no Vets, definitely no Vets. Yeah, we had Porsche finish. Porsche is what finished, I think, fourth and fifth or something like that. Those in the four GTs were... Uh, in a race of their own, but would say for sure, Nick, if we're (laughs) trying to avoid uh, ugly E outrage, there would certainly need to be some form of adjustment. But doesn't that highlight, Nick and Graham and our dear listeners, doesn't that highlight the absurdity of BOP, where, of course, we get mad in the real races, where we name your favorite brand, They're tied to a post for whatever race or a couple of races based on BOP. Just the absurdity of it all, I think, was played out perfectly. It was demonstrated everything that I... uh, I don't think this is a soapbox moment. I think this is just a recap, but... um, (laughs) I think I'll be the judge of that. Okay, should I just... (laughs) I'll just play the jingle anyways. Our our official (laughs) rant sponsor, Bushu's Hammer Emporium. Hammer's for you. Hammer's for me. Hammer's for everyone. 
Boucher's Hammer Emporium. All right, we're back. Uh, this just strikes me as the most perfect demonstration of the absurdity of BOP, where in a virtual race, it was clear that if you did not have the vehicle that got the magic BOP adjustments of success, you were fighting for table scraps. And so real life being perfectly represented in the virtual world. Um, so here we are talking about will the folks in charge of the modeling for iRacing make the necessary adjustments so non-BMWs can be competitive? And how do you do that? What is the method? Is this an article that I need to go and chase and write? Is this dialing back the BMWs? Is this dialing up the others? I don't know. Will there be BOP tables sent out saying that the BMW M8 GTE has received 10 kilos of weight for the next race and air restrictor change or boost reduction or again i don't know it'd be hilarious though if iRacing did that in the template it was sent out in was the exact same <laughs> as imsa's uh just instead of imsa it said uh, erasing um I, yeah it's just wacky it's I, i'm laughing because it's that stupid where you well, go uh, come on couldn't isn't there a way where all the cars in an i race could be equal i don't know uh i would think you could but maybe not well here's the thing uh when young stephen kilby came on board uh full-time with daily sports car um we did set him a few challenges uh, to actually go off and learn about various things and one of them was about bop and the way that we set up that to happen was to send him down to a place called base performance so yes uh, with a couple of pro drivers, um, and that the drivers, with the help of the engineers at Base Performance, would apply the various uh, balance of performance measures to the simulated car to show the difference it made. And I can remember vividly the call I got from Stephen when he came out from full day doing that. Um, you know, a, a massive revelation about what did make a difference and what fundamentally didn't make a massive difference. In other words. You know, in, in old TV terms, which were the parts of the equation that were the tuning and which were the fine tuning elements of it? So, you know, it, we, we laugh, but here's where a sim racer quite often has got an opportunity to take a bit of a leap that sometimes racers in real life don't and that they do get to play with the engineer in those cars because it doesn't cost them any money to do it. Whereas if you're going to do it out on a real-life racetrack, it takes time, and it takes track time at that. That's expensive. So at times, some of those sim racers probably have a better understanding of how to engineer the car um, than perhaps some of the regular racers do in the early part of their career at the very least. There you go. That's IMSA for now. There will be more, by the way, with our second show later in the week. And we're going to come up with uh, a, a, an idea as to which day that will be, MP. But uh, but we are going to, uh, for the duration, um, at, at the very least, uh, start to break this up into two shows a week. Uh, where are we going to go next, MP? That's your choice. You're the official selector. You tell me. Well, I think in which case it's time for you to start sending some questions up for me. It's time for Wack Haslam's Elms Echo, our ACO rules racing section. Can I mention here that I think with the dumbest acronym in all of motor racing, Wack <laughs> Elms Echo, 
just a little no- note here to Andrew Baca or any of other musically inclined listeners. I think that needs a jingle. It's too dumb. It does to need not, a jingle. Yeah, it does. Let's go with Rob Chalmers. Hey, Rob, who asks, Graham, do you think that the rumored Janetta LMP2 entry will be based on their current P1 car like Areca did with the Rebellion R1 and the Areca 05 in order for Mr. Tomlinson, owner of Janetta, to save a few quid in the finest Yorkshire tradition, as well as saving a chunk of time. Right. Well, first things first, it's not a rumoured car. Um, it is uh, basically uh, that Janetta would like to be part of this equation. They feel they were promised an opportunity to be part of the equation for the next um, round of LMP2 chassis licences. Uh, that has, at the moment, not come to pass because the LMDH uh, debate has basically defined that there will be the existing four, they being Orica, Vigier, uh, Multimatic and Delara, and that there will be no tendering of that process. That was something of a surprise. Uh, I, I say that gently. It certainly was rather more sweary in terms of the response that it got for a number of people, uh, Shay Janetta. They believe that they have showed enough loyalty to deserve the opportunity to at least compete, if not be, frankly, just handed a licence. And I think there's a fair amount uh, out there that tend to agree with that. What would happen were they to do so? Is there an outline LMP2 design? Well, yes, there is, but that design would have been the 2017 regulations. We don't have the regulations for LMDH yet, and they will be significantly different. I remind you what I said uh, last week on this, Hugh Deshonak and David Fleury telling us at Daytona that there will be no carryover of the safety cell of the Orica 07 into the next generation of Orica LMP2. So a significant change is afoot, and we'll see those cars potentially as LMDHs before we see them as LMP2s uh, with the WC season 21-22, the first set to have an opportunity to see those cars in competition before IMSA competition in 2022. So the debate here is whether or not Janetta get the opportunity. At the moment, the door is pretty firmly closed. Uh, Lawrence being Lawrence, Lawrence Tomlinson, of course, the, uh, the owner of uh, Janetta, um, will not leave it at that, uh, and I'm sure is uh, is making it very clear to the ACO and anybody else who will listen uh, that he wants this to be a very live subject. Um, it is going to be, I'm afraid, first use of hashtag wait and see, uh, but uh, for the moment, door is shut, uh, but he's trying to put his foot in there in true Yorkshire faction, gritty and gritty to the last, Let's, uh, let's hashtag wait and see, see whether or not you can be successful at that. Will that, by the way, be based on the P1 car? Well, that's going to depend on just exactly what those regulations say. Pretty clearly, if you're looking to save money, he's invested in the ability to design and build carbon fibre chassis. Will there be carryover of that tech? Yes. Will there be carryover of that design? We can't say because we don't know what the regulations are going to say. Next question here. Sends a little reminder through my brain. This comes from Ryan Terpstra. It says, can either of you refresh my memory? Some drivers were given a pass from attending Lamar scrutineering in 2019 due to other commitments. Should mention here that last week we had a question from a listener. I apologize for not remembering who submitted it. But the question was posed to, do we think IMSA would move their September race dates? 
in order to accommodate the new Le Mans date? And I said, no, I can't fathom that being the case. They already have it on the books. They already have it scheduled from a TV standpoint. The broadcasters have everything booked and ready to go. No way I could see that happen. Because the universe likes to remind me on a routine basis how stupid I am. I think within hours, <laughs> it was moved. It was changed. Just a further reminder, take everything I say with an appropriate level of suspicion uh, or just whatever the correction factor is. Multiply what I say times whatever the correct percentage of idiocy is, is needed and just know that, yeah, after that, I was like, well, I mean, I'm well accustomed to being an idiot. That's not unfamiliar, but I just love that. We're like, no, can't see it. No, I mean, I gotta believe Imps is going to stand on what they have because since everything else is changing, that's far out enough to where they would just lock that. Oh, they're moving. Okay. Yeah. Sorry. Disregard everything I said. Um, what do you think here on Ryan's question, Graham? Do you think since and in the spirit of, everything else moving in the sport when we're going to have a bunch of date clashes across all kinds of series that normally try and give each other some, some clear space for their big events. Do you think our friends at the ACO might be a little more lenient uh, for those who might have conflicts that keep them away from scrutineering uh, this year, a one-time pass per se? But they, they have before. I'm trying to think what it was last year is Ryan's absolutely right. Wasn't it weather? That, that grounded a couple of planes and meant that people were late uh, late over. We've certainly seen people late before. We've seen people who were due to sign in on the Sunday, coming on the Monday. We've certainly seen a bunch of people uh, turning up um, on the Tuesday and going to scrutineer their gear uh, actually at the circuit rather than the Place de la République. Uh, it's, it's a kind of fine tradition of racing drivers being late for scrutinizing. I can remember one driver who shall remain nameless um, that was heroically late for their slots and indeed heroically late for their precious team photographs, something which is a key part of the ceremony of uh, scrutinizing, where you have the car and the drivers and the helmets, etc. And I can recall standing at, I think, what was then the Place de Jacobin before we moved the... Um, scrutineering from in the shadow of the cathedral to where it uh, is now in the Place de Republique, um, being told that he'd arrived at um, Charles de Gaulle Airport and was driving down. He, to say he got there remarkably quickly would be an understatement. It was only... Turned after, up three days after the race. No, no, no. He was heroically late um, at that point. From there on in, it's fair to say that he made up for lost time uh, because he got there in his road-going Maserati MC12. Um, and I can tell you that um, there is no way, no way on God's green earth um, that speed limits were obeyed. I'm not going to give the name of the driver. Uh, as you'll have gathered by the standard of the machinery, this was not a pro driver. This was a somewhat wealthy gentleman driver. But he got there in TGV-like fashion. Quite a remarkable trip from Charles de Gaulle. Um, and they did indeed get their photograph. I'd have to believe, Ryan, that the notoriously non-lenient ACO <laughs> would have to understand that. They'd have to. Everyone, yeah. this is a this is a year where, for those who are not accommodating, as a result of everything, the coronavirus is changing. Shame on them. Let's go. Mm -hmm. Let's go to. 
Dustin at D underscore cheesy. That's a great one. Uh, Graham, will the WAC and ACO still invite Corvette racing to Le Mans, having only run one of the two required races uh, for an entry with a tight schedule for IMSA around the time of Le Mans? says, do you think they will attempt it? And what would their hashtag B.O. penis look like? I think the answer is in exactly the same vein as you've just said, uh, MP. No doubt at all we will have the two uh, Corvettes on the, the list. They are on uh, the official list, remember. They've been invited. Um, it is not their fault that they don't have the opportunity to do a race that has now been cancelled. Remember, the um, uh, WC race at Sebring is not postponed, it is cancelled. So there's no doubt in my mind that that invitation will stand. Uh, what will the BOP be like? It's not good news for Corvette, of course, that they've lost another opportunity uh, because, of course, they did race the car at Cota, but lost an opportunity to have a second crack at it. Um, in answer to the question that's not been asked, do I think there might be a Corvette appearing at any uh, WC race prior because remember we haven't got a test day either uh, this year which is another factor I find that highly unlikely uh, simply because the logistical challenges uh, beyond that there are major economic factors to bear in mind of this of all years uh, and I suspect that everybody is going to be tightening their belts to a ludicrous degree uh, this year, I think we're going to see a lot of very different outlooks and attitudes uh, from uh, teams large and small. Uh, so what do I think? I think we'll see two Corvette C8Rs rock up as the factory uh, efforts. I think there'll be a lot of horse trading about BOP happening from now on in uh, to try to get to a realistic level. Uh, we have, of course, seen the C8Rs running at Daytona against all bar the Aston Martins uh, in, albeit in GTLM rather than GTE Pro, but not a huge amount of difference there. Uh, so we'll hope that what we'll get is a competitive pair of brand new shiny C8Rs. Throw in here quickly as well, Dustin, that I do. I'm pouring out a 40 in advance. I'm feeling a wee bit sad for any newish vehicles i think the corvette really Ooh. might be the only one but for those who do go racing at Le Mans this year without the excessive amount of mileage forget what the team wants to learn the car but to be able to feed the aco uh, what they need to balance it correctly we've seen in the past with the c7 r graham which has a zil- had a zillion miles been to Le Mans many times we'd seen years where it was just decimated through BOP where they were also rans before the first lap of practice was turned. And that's with a vehicle that they had untold amounts of data to use to make said decisions. Uh, again, could be wrong. Hope I'm wrong, but I do fear as Dustin rightly points out, boy, uh, this seems like a car that could be beyond negatively uh, affected by this when it comes time to uh, set BOP and then go racing. We also know, just another little quick proviso, it's fairly rare when we see the ACO let a new vehicle jump right to the front and uh, be the the big dominant thing at the 24 Hours of Le Mans. So between those two factors, (sighs) if I were a gambling man, I probably would be putting $0.0 on a Corvette racing win. 
uh, in September. Let's go to our final Wackasm Elms Echo question for this episode, Monsieur Graham. This comes in from our man John Foreman. Hey, John. Says, with Lamont moving back three months, will Rebellion stick around to see out its season finale and its racing finale? He says, at this point, it would seem to be a better financial decision to call it quits a little early. Real shame to see them go. Also, thanks for all you do for us fans, GG and MP. You had a chance to reach out to uh, Kaleem or anyone else at Rebellion to get a feel for uh, where they might be at, Graham. You know, not uh, on my list, as it uh, turns out, this week. So you can be guaranteed that uh, as soon as this podcast goes out, you'll read it on a, a website elsewhere, what they're doing. So um, the answer, I think, is all bets are off right now. I don't, at the moment, have any information of anything other than the programmed um, effort that Rebellion are due to undertake. Certainly the second car is a fully commercial car. In other words effectively bought and paid for for spa and le mans as was whether or not that contract stays honestly who can tell um am i expecting there to be some changes i genuinely am expecting there to be some changes for the entry for just about every major sports car race but that's not based at the moment on specific knowledge of individual programs being you know under review or in trouble it's just the common sense of the cataclysmic effect that this shutdown is beginning to have economically and commercially on a vast range of organisations. So, um, you know, what do I think? I think the answer we get today might be different from the answer you get in a week or a month or six weeks. So right now we know of no change. There has been no um, uh, no confirmed pulling back from their commitments uh, with uh, endurance motorsport, which is, as you quite rightly say, is due to finish at the end of the Le Mans 24 hours. But I'm not going to be putting any money on that one either, that we won't see changes. And you have to say that uh, the Rebellion program, you would look to, to to be reassured, I think would be the, uh, the way I'd say it, that uh, they will fulfill that commitment. We are going to move to Hegenerau, also known as General. The first question here is what I've been looking forward to answering. <laughs> Part of me thinks we should also spin this out into a separate podcast, maybe flesh Ooh. it out a little bit. Yeah. <clears throat> maybe we can answer it in compact form here. Maybe you'll do such a good job. I know I won't. That we <laughs> cut and paste this into a separate episode. This comes from Tim Vaughn. Hey there, Tim. Says, with all this downtime, is there any way either of you could possibly explain all the GT categories? <sighs> Tim, this is a this is a hate post right here, by the way. <laughs> oh man, what are you doing to us? He says GT three, GT four, GTLM, GTD. I can kind of keep the IMSA one straight, but don't understand them in relation to the rest of the world or other US series. Okay. I get I'll so stop. confused. Where should we start on? I think uh, let's stick with stick with the GT classes for starters. I, I'll repeat something I've said before on the weekend sports cars, which is the extraordinary thing about the world which we are commenting upon in this very podcast right now is, despite the vast numbers of uh, championships worldwide, there are barely two that have the same class structure 
in a championship. But let's keep it as simple as we possibly can and keeping it to the cars that Tim has actually asked about. So GT3, GT4, GTLM, GTD. Um, Effectively, three classes. GT4, uh, for which read GS as well in the Michelin Pilot Challenge. Uh, That is a classification effectively owned by, under GT4, SRO. SRO hold the trademark of GT4. Stefan Rattel Organization, SRO. Indeed. That you will see those same cars effectively lightly modified production cars. Little bit of aero, the required safety equipment um, that you would have in a modern race car. But these are effectively um, tuned uh, race-prepared road cars. And, and another thing to note here, not heavily restricted in terms of power. And so nope. that that is one thing that is rather unique, yep. Tim, with GT4. It seems like the, oddly, this is an inverse. It's also numerically an inverse. We go f- the higher the number in GT, GT4, I don't really know if we have five, six, seven, eight yet, but the higher the number the lower the category of racing, meaning more entry-level, more Correct. pro-am, get in here, and you work your way up by going to lower numbers, GT3, GT2, GT1, though we don't really have GT1 anymore, but GT4 is kind of the international step-in level. Uh, but oddly, or maybe interestingly, since these are the most authentic road-based of the GT categories, meaning the the least modified, the closest to what you would have on the street, they also, uh, from a a sanctioning body standpoint, make the the least effort to turn down the big horsepower that they might make. Again, the car is a little bit heavier, a little bit clunkier, less um, athletic, in their performance to some of the lower GT numbers, threes and twos and such. But I think that's kind of tied into the mindset we should explain, Graham. That entry level, much as close as you're going to get, uh, barring a true street stock car with just a roll cage and a fire bottle in it, uh, the fact that it is so close to the road-based version, they tend to leave just about everything else uh, alone. And only when you start going faster in the GT categories do we see the power numbers tend to start getting pulled back and back and back. Yeah, so to give you an idea, in terms of the U.S., you'll see those cars in the Michelin Pilot Challenge and the GS class. You'll see them in SRO America, in GT4 America, and in Sprint X GT4. Typically, a couple of typical ideas of what that might be. It's a combination, by the way, of weight and power. So you can have very powerful um Street cars like a McLaren 570S, where there's a GT4 version of that. Or you can have one that's got less power but less weight, KTM Crossbow being another one uh, in GT4. You won't see that, unfortunately, for IMSA races um, in Michelin Pilot Challenge. Move on up and you get to what's called FIA GT3. It's an FIA class. It's, again, a class that's been prompted by moves from SRO, the Stefan Rattel Organization, um, and they have the most prominent balanced performance. I'm going to let MP explain that part of it in a moment. GT For GT3, read GTD and IMSA, read SP9 at the VLN across the Nürburgring, read Class A 
at the Bathurst 12 hours. So those same cars, and by the way, for uh, also read GT in the Asian Le Mans series and in the Michelin Le Mans Cup across in Europe. Uh, so the, they're all the same cars. They're all to the same specification. They do, however, differ in terms of the balance of performance that's applied to those cars. Typically speaking, they're the next level up in terms of the cars that you will see on track. Um, highly sophisticated aerodynamics and electronics. Uh, these cars feature both anti-lock brakes and traction control uh, because they're designed to be accessible, that performance for the uh, gentleman drivers that typically will drive those in pro-am competition. But increasingly, you're seeing those cars as well in some competition with full pro lineups. BOP, though, is the defining factor there, MP, Yes. It is, and also after I'm done handling the BOP side, you can hopefully, Graham, close out GT3 on the minimum homologation manufacturing numbers. Yep. It's also part of the puzzle. So, Tim, the thing that's, I would say, the number one differentiator for the GT3 formula is how it has been crafted to deal with different vehicles participating. So this SRO-created formula, GT3, which Gray mentioned, there's an FIA, totally separate French organization, that has their own. Uh, it's the same thing, uh, but have it as well. The way Stefan Rattel went about fashioning GT3 is one of the reasons it has been the most successful global GT formula for however many years, Graham, I'm forgetting ex the exact start date. But yeah, I was going to say 10, almost 15 years. If we think about some of the other very specific formulas, which Graham and I will get into, GT1, GT2 and such, uh, GTLM today, GT or slash GTE, those are highly specified formulas where truly down to the last nut and bolt there are rules and regulations written on how those cars must be built in order to comply with regulations in order to be given the ability to race gt3 mindset the exact opposite Rattel's approach which was brilliant was recognizing hey there are a lot of auto manufacturers making supercars and it would be great to have them on the track together. But asking all these manufacturers to go back to the drawing board and create very custom, only applying to our racing series type rules with that car, that would be a bit hard. That would also be something we'd have to ask of, you know, 25, 30 different manufacturers showing an interest. You have to go spend a ton to build to a hardcore set of rules just for us what he said was well that doesn't make sense that's going to limit interest and participation from a lot of manufacturers we're going to struggle to get proper grids so what we're going to do is this everyone must do the same basic things full roll cage that must meet you know very stringent safety requirements fire bottle we're going to have all kinds of Things where we say, look, this is the core of this GT3 rule set. So the cars are safe. The cars are competitive. Cars are easier to drive. 
uh, for the gentleman, gentlewoman driver who might want to step in, the non-pros, but also something that can perform highly if you throw a pro behind the wheel. So we're going to have a, a bit of a pro-am requirement for GT3. But by and large, we're not going to ask dozens of auto manufacturers to have to do custom one-off builds of these cars just to comply for our series. We're going to say, everyone do these basic things. You over here with a lightweight supercar with a powerful engine, but not crazy powerful, but a lot of aerodynamics. And you over here with a bigger, heavier supercar with a bigger, wow, that's a powerful engine, uh, but maybe not with a ton of aerodynamics. We're going to, through bounds of performance, say, bring them. We'll figure it out. We're not going to ask you to do crazy, crazy regulatory compliance. We'll figure it out. You over here, that's super light and faster than the one that's heavy. You're going to get some weight. You over here that your thing goes like a missile on the straights, but it doesn't have enough arrow to get through the corners, well, we're going to give you some arrow. So you're going to get some bigger wings or more of this. It's really a willingness, Tim, which I think is, again, it's the brilliance of the GT3 formula to say, let us figure that stuff out. Let's make it easy on you. Let us figure it out. And we're going to give everybody the thing they need to take potentially very different types of cars, front engine, rear engine, mid engine, high power, low power, big motor, small motor, big arrow, small arrow. We're going to massage as necessary on this end through BOP to create parity so that more or less, Graham, anyone with a car that you would say is somewhat super can go GT3 racing. That is a vastly different mindset to what we have with today's GTLM, as it's called in IMSA, or GTE in the FIWEC. So that might be something we'll get into that in just a moment. But the homologation numbers as well is also a key aspect of GT3. It is. So, I mean, to give you an idea how successful that has been, uh, the latest car to be homologated, that is the process where a car is approved to be, if you like, a global GT3 car. These cars can take part in a vast array of racing uh, worldwide. It's led to an explosion of the number of races that are relevant for those cars. So the last car to be homologated was the McLaren 720S GT3. That is the newest um, GT3 car out there. That is the 52nd car since the start of GT3 homologation. That, that is uh, GT3 wow. 052. Uh, that is a 50-second car. In terms of the uh, homologation numbers, now what this is uh, designed to do, and um, it was designed on the back of uh, a couple of projects, but the one I'll mention was the latest Cadillac GT3 car, where there were no customer cars offered whatsoever. That was not the way this was designed uh, as a formula. And the uh, the weights that SRO actually hold here meant that that was really the death of that program. So what you have to do now, within two years of homologation of your car, you must have sold 20 cars. Now, I've been trying to chase down exactly what that's going to mean for a variety of cars uh, that are on the cusp of that uh, stand-up Callaway C7 uh, GT3 Corvette stand up 
the Lexus RCF GT3, where there's no way that the current iterations of those cars uh, have reached that 20 and have yet not had an answer. But I think the answer is it would be within the gift of uh, championship organisers to basically say, should they wish to do so, no, you won't come into our uh, on, into our kind of uh, championship this year. Whether or not they do, I think, uh, depends on the health or otherwise of those championships and what the organisers choose to do. But that's what it is. It's tightly controlled in terms of the framework, in terms of the, uh, in terms of the balance of performance. But you're absolutely right. The technical regulations, they are <laughs> very slim indeed, which leads us to, as you quite neatly actually said a little earlier, MP, the third and final of the major current um, classifications of GT car. We're going to, for the moment, put aside GT2. That's something different. We might mention that right at the end. And that is in uh, ACO world, GTE, uh, and in uh, the uh, IMSA world, GTLM. They are the same cars. Uh, in the WEC, you'll have GTE Pro, which is an all-pro formula, GTE Am, where there are restrictions on the driver gradings you can have aboard those squads, GTLM in IMSA, very much a full-pro formula. For the most part, uh, there's there some crossover here with some of these cars. There are uh, you know, only very few manufacturers now directly involved. We've got, obviously, Corvette. We've got BMW. Ford have left the building. Porsche, Aston Martin, Ferrari. The Ferrari and the Aston Martin are both available with a kit, and that is a quite extensive kit, where the same base car can be either a GT3 uh, or a GTE slash GTLM. Uh, it does involve things like changing the engine in the case of the, uh, in case of the Aston Martin. Uh, the, the, the most obvious difference uh, are going to be things like the electronics. There are no anti-lock braking, for instance, on a GTE car. Um, there is on a GT3 car. So these are cars that are a bit more, how can I put this? It's a, it's a sharper sword altogether. Built from uh, the outset as a pro factory very much. Uh, regulation. Now, we know in IMSA, in GTLM, there is no GTLM AM for nope. an amateur, a required pro and AM driver lineup. GTD here with the GT3 cars were by law, <laughs> uh, and that's pretty much a global requirement as well with GT3, that um, you are going to have a pro-am lineup. There have been some exceptions, but by and large, wherever you see GT3 cars racing in a professional environment, know that there is a required pro-am model. With GTE slash GTLM, those are factory race cars. Ferrari, we know, have sold and are represented by um, customer, call it customer, uh, type uh, environments. We've had, again, limited, limited numbers of sales of these factory cars to privateers to race over the years. But when we think about GTE slash GTLM, we know that those cars start as factory efforts, not mass-produced GT3 cars that anybody can buy. Granted, there's a further modifier here, Graham, that in the WEC, there is a dedicated GTE AM class where these cars, although not all are made available by the manufacturers to sell them for use there, 
there is actually a very robust uh, Pro-Am model there uh, we have in the WAC. Absolutely right. The the final difference, and you you said it a little earlier, is the absolutely ironclad set of technical regulations which surround these cars. And I'll give you one example that shows you exactly how how, uh, tightly home they are. And it came with uh, a pole position for a Corvette C7. Um, It's... Was it? I think it was the C7 for Labra competition some years ago in the WEC, their first pole position with that car. And when the car went for post-session technical examination, it was excluded because it was fitted with a valve on the fuel tank. It's a valve that if the car becomes an inverted, in other words, rolls over, that the fuel will stay in the tank. It's effectively a snapshot valve that means the fuel will not leak out. That was a part that had been on those cars from the very start of that program. Uh, it was a Pratt & Miller supplied part. That all the factory cars have exactly the same one. It wasn't, however, an FIA homologated part and the, because a, a change had been made very early on. Whether or not it was a, an error in paperwork, I don't know. But the reality was that cost them a pole position because it was the wrong part. In no way affected performance, in no way affected anything other than presumably Pratt Miller and the Corvette guys decided that was a better, safer part. But that cost that team a very valuable result on that day. It is ironclad and absolutely rigidly enforced. So that's the great thing, Tim, to take home about GTLM. It is, as I often say on the show, it fits my firm belief that sports car racing was never devised as an actual competition, but as a rule following and rule based application and honoring uh, competition. Something where the rule book is so incredibly thick that this is just meant to see who can actually win. Uh, by running afoul of the fewest number of violations. Uh, GTLM slash GTE, it is all about them rules. It is meant for manufacturers to opt into. It is not something your small volume constructor can really support. Uh, so that is the key difference here. And also from a minimum number standpoint, Graham, that might be a, a good final thing to close on here. What about from a homologation standpoint? How many models... Uh, are GTE slash GTLM constructors required to build? Uh, oh, no, that's a good question. Uh, that's from memory. I'd have to, do you know what? I'd have to check it. It's a straight answer. I had a feeling, because bear in mind, things like the Porsche 911 RSR, a mid-engine Porsche 911, does not exist as a, uh, as a road car. Uh, but we're talking here about a range of base models the ferrari 488 the bmw m8 the the aston martin vantage the porsche 911 and the uh, the corvette c8r which should not be struggling by the way uh, in terms of the base road models for the kind of numbers that are required uh, to produce those cars i've got a feeling it's something like 25 and famously we have the ford gt example of yep. there being leniency granted from the outset. Well, apologies, it's, two, it's 200, isn't it? It's 200. Well, I was going it's, to say uh, yep. 175 plus the 25 that you mentioned. 
I didn't yep. know that number as well. Uh, but Ford is, has been the most recent uh, caveat uh, in this requirement in that when they went racing and won their class at the 24 Hours of Le Mans in 2016, I don't believe any customer mm-hmm. cars had been produced, much less sold. But there was a promise that that would happen. And with many interests to protect, uh, the ACO said, great, bring it. IMSA said, fine, bring it. And they did. So I do believe they've more than honored what -hmm. they said they would do afterwards. But at least at the time, um, there was nothing really super in place there. So um, where should we go next? Because... I think we have one. Well, we got one more Hagenaral. So let's do that. Uh, that we're okay. going to do for this week. And this is from our man Buddy Campbell. This is just a comment, but I wanted to encourage people to take this time off to watch some other racing series you've hardly or never seen. Buddy says the other day I was watching some broadcast last season of the TC two thousand series from Argentina in some H one unlimited hydroplanes. But he goes on to say, I think broadening your racing horizons makes you a better motorsports fan and a great representative of the motorsports community as a whole. I, I, we This is deserving the first amen of the episode here, and Buddy is certainly uh, a massive, massive fan of the good old motor racing. This would be a fun one to hear. And why mm-hmm. don't we just do a, a call out here? Send us in your thoughts. What have you been watching? Uh, what have you been watching that, that's new or interesting or amusing that you have not before? And are there any series you've been hoping to learn about, watch, or consume that you're going to? Whatever it is, share, if you could, our uh, Marshall Pruitt Podcast Facebook page. A great place to do that. Uh, so send that. Whatever it is might be intriguing you, might be on the cusp of coming into your world like TC2000, which is great. Uh, hydroplanes, unlimited hydroplanes, fully insane oh, here, buddy. But whatever those things are, focus. yeah, why don't you share? Because as we are seeing and learning and knowing every day, the more we can help one another to distract or get through this really strange period that is wrought with fear and anxiety as well. And I wouldn't just say the common variety of I'm worried about things, more of the I'm worried about if I'm going to have a job next week. I'm worried yep. how I'm going to pay my rent on April 1st. You know, some real, not just these general I'm concerned items, but keep hearing from every from every sector imaginable in our world, Graham, through direct Absolutely. message, text, email. Hey, you know, thanks for doing what you do. Thanks to everyone else who's generating content uh, in racing for me to consume. Just got laid off. Just got fired. Yep. Uh, my wife, my husband just got named the thing where you go, oh, geez. Um, so just trying to think of the things that we might share collectively that uh, can help others at a time where there's a lot of folks. Heck, <laughs> uh, without o- overstating the obvious, the concerns about employment and ability to pay for things, let's just say those concerns aren't external. Uh, those Indeed. are also things Graham and I may have discussed those very things before we started recording today uh, about our world. So this is not something we're immune to. 
you certainly are not immune to uh, on your end at home. So any things you might share, uh, send them in. And I, actually, I think what I'm going to do, because it would be smart, is just to create a thread on our MP Podcast yep. Facebook page. Send in what you're watching, what you're listening to, what you're reading. Let's create a little mini database of distraction items that others might jump into. So thanks for that, buddy. Genuinely appreciate it. Graham, I mean, you are the official selecta of where we go, but there's only one left. So I think by default, it's just occurred to me that each week you don't actually choose a final category because it's there by default. It's it, it, There you go. That, that's the smart guy. You, it, it, is indeed. it only took me two years to figure <laughs> that out. <laughs> uh, it, is, it is indeed uh, what we call fun. <sighs> and uh, we're going to pick two or three uh, of these questions to finish off this episode. We'll get to another hour or so of fun and games later in the week. Uh, this one comes from Racer Spacer, at Racer Spacer, who says he's never heard the full Christoph Bushu Hammer story. Can you please elaborate? Thank you. The answer is I'm not going to because you've got a new podcast thread, haven't you, MP? I do. I do. What's nine it called? minutes of nonsense. It's a nine minute or less podcast about whatever. And it occurred to me that we get this question every month or two, the inside jokes and inside stupidity. Yeah, yeah. it's part of what we do. Uh, and the Bushu Hammer Emporium is certainly one that is so bizarre and abstract that just occurred to me, you know, we should maybe spin this out into a nine minutes or less of its own. So it's there in perpetuity. Any questions that come in, we can direct folks to it instead of, the August 14th week in sports cars at one hour and 14 minute mark is where you find the answer. So, <laughs> well, well, my offer to you is this. Um, it's a story I think that came from my end of the, uh, the bargain. Oh, here. it's yours. I, Absolutely. I, uh, I have a reason to speak to the other party involved, if I might uh, call them that, uh, in the next few days. I will do that, and I'll see whether or not they will actually give us nine minutes of nonsense on this and tell the story in their own words, uh, which probably will end up being miraculously uh, different different from the one that we told in the first place. Who knows? But let's see whether or not we can get that person to do that. And if we can, then we'll pop that up as a nine minutes of nonsense at some point in the next week or two. And if it's longer, it'll just be a catching up with. Whatever it is, we're going to dedicate a uh, standalone something to this that we can point to, so... Thank you, good old racer of the spacer. Let's see. I'll throw the penultimate question of the episode to you. Should also mention that you wouldn't know this because it was edited out, but uh, about a half hour into the show, I got a call from seven-time NASCAR champion Jimmy Johnson. So uh, I had to hit the pause button and dive off and capture that interview, and then we came back. So here we are. So I actually don't know where we're at in the timestamp because I didn't have time (laughs) to start a separate recording. So... Anyways, uh, let's go to Mark Usher asking, uh, again, penultimate question for the week, but similar to the final question as well. This is a fun one for both of ye. He says, if you could pick just one sports car to drive from any era, what would it be and what track would ye pick to give it a spin on? Right, me first. Uh, easy one for me. I have a dream car. Uh, it is the McLaren F1. I thought you were going to say um, Donker Vort. I was so no, hoping no, it was no, Donker Vort. No, no, not the Donker Vort. No, it'd be the McLaren F1. I don't really mind whether or not it's short or the long tail version of it. I've always wanted to drive from those cars. I came very close to an opportunity to driving 
the the car that I absolutely wanted to drive, which was the Harrods um, liveried short tail car. Not fact, the PP Clinic one? No. And if you actually look at Daily Sports Car, you will see a little bit of banter I had uh, this week with Harry Tignall. Harry, one of the uh, growing cast of people we've got to do their best car, worst car, dream car. And um, one of Harry's uh, dreams was to race that car. He has driven it. Damn him. Um, that very car uh, used to be owned by David Clark, one of the partners at Jota Sport. And Harry was given the opportunity to thank you uh, for the Le Mans win in 2014 to drive David's car, now sold, uh, up the hill at Goodwood. David, by the way, drove the Zytec uh, up the hill that had won Le Mans. Uh, but that's the one for me and the track I would choose simply because it holds some great memories of um, days out with my then young son, no longer that young, um, uh, and that would be Brands Hatch around the Grand Prix circuit where I did see those cars compete uh, in period in the BPR. And uh, I have very happy memories of doing so. So it would be the Harrods McLaren uh F1, and it would be the Grand Prix circuit at Brands Hatch. There you go. So, Mark, we get this question probably once a month, and we pass on it quite often, but every once we realize it's been a while since we've answered it, we will take it and try and give it a different answer. I should just mention here, in a moment of transparency, Graham failed because he just gives the same answer every time, so that's fine. <laughs> uh, we're going to give you a bit of a, a, a Q&A BOP penalty this time around pal uh so i'll try and think of something different than my usual eagle mark 3 gtp jag xjr 14 i'm sorry yeah 14 or um seven or five one of those models i'm going to go with something that i and i was fortunate to see this and it still blows my mind 1989 audi 90 IMSA GTO, right? All-wheel drive, 700-plus horsepower, just animal decimating all earth and time and history with its amazingness, its inline five-cylinder turbo. And I would pick the track it's never been on, but one where I believe it might have been built to compete on despite no one ever thinking about that at the time. And that would be Bathurst. Could you imagine throwing one of the great GT cars of all time? And this is GTO, IMSA GTO in its Mm -hmm. era. These are silhouette cars that while it's, well, I shouldn't say predecessor, the first factory Audi GT race car in the U S came the year before 1988 in the SCCA Trans Am series. Now, that was also a silhouette formula. Tube frame, you name it. Audi did not do that in 1988. They actually used their 200 model, and it was a production-based vehicle, massively modified, but it was a true production shell that they used. Destroyed everything, won the championship. Uh, It was written out of the rules the following year. Actually, they didn't ban the car. They just made it so it could no longer be competitive. So they said, great, let's go to the one place left where we can play with craziness, and it won't be over-regulated, and that was IMSA's GTO category. And they went full tube frame. They went full everything, and it was the 
complete expression of that model of that car mark so having seen this full tube frame silhouette cartoon (laughs) i say 700 horsepower we know that it was more than that but the thought of seeing this all-wheel drive just intergalactic german death tank uh screaming (laughs) across the top of the mountain and blasting through the cutting and just I cannot fathom a circuit better suited for this vehicle. It had power like mad in a straight line, but from a handling standpoint, as the only all-wheel drive GT car in North America at that time, um, and really all-wheel drive was soon something that even IMSA said, nah, you don't have to bring those anymore. Uh, This is a bit of a unicorn. And so the thought of taking this across the mountain and down the hill and up the hill and uh, oh man yeah uh give me that be, all day every day and yeah um it'd be kangaroos everywhere wouldn't they oh we would actually have to fashion not a cow catcher but a kangaroo catcher that just gently f- that flip them up over the car but while going over the roof Somehow we attached little parachutes to them so that they about, landed safely. If, if if you actually if you made it like uh, like a human kind of um, hand the front, it could scoop up the young ones. You could call it a Joey hand. <laughs> oh <my God. laughs> ah, what is wrong with you? What is wrong with you? All so right. much. I'm, we're going to make an executive decision here. We're actually going to call that the final question. The last one that we had flagged, we'll save that to start off next uh, the next episode here, the continuation of the Weekend Sports Cars and the good old podcast named after me, sponsored by the Justice Brothers, torontomotorsports.com. And, yeah, I mean, again, Cooper, thank you. Justice Brothers, thank you. We throw in our friends at torontomotorsports.com and also Bell Racing Helmets USA. They all take great care of us before we say farewell though graham tell folks what they might look forward to this week on dailysportscar.com knowing that you've had a bit of a strategy shift in what you're delivering uh, we have and we continuing down the road of just project positivity i think is what we're talking about here it's a worrying time for people we're trying to give people some positive stuff to look at uh if you've looked over the last couple of days we've been listing the kind of documentary uh motorsport movies you can actually see online free to view and we're just about to go with the uh the next uh, tranche of that which is stuff you can actually buy to download or on dvd but more than that it's some of the names you've got to look forward to with a range of interview formats that we're putting forward at the moment already in the can for that alex brundle david brabham peter dumbreck guy smith charlie robertson dumbreck's out of prison oh that is great to hear it's really good uh richard dean um and Derek bell uh on the you'll be getting a call from me to leave the phone off a hook Jamie Campbell Walter, Nick, Nick Benazian, Henri Pescarolo will be far part of that too. Uh, Alan McNish is probably finding out now I'm about to call him. 
Uh, beyond that, we've got some of the Corvette factory drivers coming. We've got some of the Aston factory drivers coming. Uh, we get, we've got some of the Porsche factory drivers coming and some of the greats as well. So there'll be a lot more to come. However long this, this lasts, we'll keep pu- pumping this stuff out. I'll be honest with you, I'm enjoying it so much. We won't be stopping there either. There'll be a lot more of this stuff to come and some really cool stuff to come. Uh, from some of the guys we've already spoken to. We are playing catch-up at the moment. Lots of stuff on tape that we need to basically get into the correct format to present it on Daily Sports Car. So watch for that. Watch for more feature content. We'll be pumping the way of racer.com as well uh, with Stephen Kilby. Um, And for now, for me, you said it already, MP. Stay well. Listen to the advice you're all being given and please follow it because we want to see you guys on the other side Uh, as well as this it is a worrying time try not to worry take care of your families take care of yourselves don't worry for the moment about the other factors that are coming into play we know there's massive concerns about all sorts of aspects of everybody's lives at the moment please see this as i do as a bit of a haven of you know friend friendship and camaraderie and goodness pop that uh, that thread up on the uh, facebook page and let's get a bit of a uh, a conversation going here mp about what it is that people do want to see from the weekend sports cars the marshall Pruitt podcast racer and daily sports car and we'll be working our nuts off to provide exactly that and with that nutty based farewell i am marshall pruitt that is graham goodwin thank you for listening we'll be back to you in a few days with part two <laughs>